Excellent. My name is Tom Shirk. That's a name for you. I am on staff here at Calvary, usually on the Boulder campus, and it's a delight to be here with Zach and the entire team. Appreciate everything that is happening on the Thornton campus, uh, especially last week. What an awesome week it was on all of our campuses, and thank you for those of you who helped make so many special things happen last week. As we closed up the book of Luke, and today we're going to start a new book, we're going into the Old Testament. When's the last time you read an Old Testament book? This morning, right? You read Daniel chapter 1 because <clears throat> you knew we were going to be there. We, we try to purposely open up the Bible here. I was just talking to somebody uh, before service who said, um, I said, how long have you been here? She said about a year and a half. And I came here because you teach the Bible. So if you're new... We're committed to opening the Bible and saying, what does God say in his word? Because none of us have much good to say unless it's shaped by what God has said in his word. So if you have a Bible, uh, why don't you open, try to find the Old Testament book of Daniel. You can use your concordance because you haven't been there for a while, but uh, it's there in the Old Testament. And we're going to look there for a moment. But I'd like to share one verse before we go on. It's in the New Testament from the book of Romans. And it talks about the writings of the Old Testament. And this is what it says in Romans chapter uh, 14. In Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 4, it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have... Everybody? Okay, do you need hope today? Okay, one of the ways that God gives hope to people in a hard time is being a student of the Word of God. And what was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that we would know how God worked in the Old Testament. And then by knowing how God worked in the Old Testament, we would endure in our day, being shaped by what the Scriptures teach, and then we would be hopeful people. And we live in a world that needs to see hopeful people. Would you agree? There is a hopelessness in our world. There is a real deep confusion in our world. And wouldn't it be great if what walked out of this church and the Boulder Church and the Erie Church every Sunday morning were people who were just so hopeful that there is a God who is working even when we can't see Him working. We can't see how it's happening. But we're hopeful because God always worked through the teachings and the unfolding of His history in the Old Testament All that's written in the Old Testament is for our instruction that we would know this is what kind of God we have. This is how he works. He works and he's going to keep working. He's going to work in 2024 in your life. And so you should be hopeful. All right? All right, let's close in prayer. (laughs) That'd be good enough, wouldn't it? It would be good enough. But what I want to do, here's three things I want to do. I want to give you a scope of where Daniel fits in the Bible. And then I want to take a fairly fast, run through three sections of chapter one that are sort of three episodes, and then I want to draw some applications for us for when we go home this afternoon, okay? Here's the chart. This is a glimpse of the Old Testament. You might want to take a picture of this. That would maybe help you have this, but this is a historical chart of the Old Testament beginning in the patriarchal period when Abraham was called by God in the book of Genesis. And um, you can see that this lays out the flow of the Old Testament from the call of Abraham to 
the sojourn down into Egypt with Joseph, and then um, Moses delivering Israel out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. That's Israel in the wilderness and the crossing of the Red Sea. And then they wandered there for 40 years and then they made the conquest into the land, crossed um, the Red Sea and Joshua took the land and we went into a period of judges. And then somewhere about 1050, um, the people of Israel kept saying to God, oh, if we only had a king, if we were only like all the other nations, just give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And what'd God do? He gave them a king because they didn't want him to be their king. And so he gave them Saul and Saul's heart wasn't for God. And Saul had a son, a, a successor, and that was David. And David came on the throne and David had a son. He was Solomon. And in um, 10, 930, this is small. We're going to get bigger in a second. In 930, uh, the kingdom divided. And then there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was comprised of 10 tribes. And they had a score of kings. And does anybody know how many of those kings, after Saul, David, Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits in two, Northern kingdom. Anybody know how many good kings there were? Caleb? Zero. Zero. <laughs> and it says of those kings, they forsook the Lord and they served Baal and Ashtaroth. And they just led all of God's people to pursue other gods. And therefore, in 722, the northern kingdom was taken captive to Assyria. The southern kingdom, also called Judah composed of the tribes Judah and Benjamin, fared slightly better. Of 20 kings, six were good. And so they lasted longer. <clears throat> they lasted until 586. And then they were taken captive. And you can see Daniel there under this period of captivity. So if you want to say, where's the cross of Jesus? Here it is at the end. And 586 B.C. is where we are, essentially, in the history of looking at the book of Daniel. And because during the kingdom period, Israel forsook God, God raised up prophets. And the prophets came and they continued to speak to Israel, saying, repent, turn back to the Lord. What you're doing is not right. And Jeremiah... And Isaiah were among the primary prophets who spoke to the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, and spoke to that nation to say, turn back to the Lord. In Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah said to Jehoiakim, one of the kings, uh, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of the southern kingdom, Judah, to come to worship in the house of the Lord. And I command you to speak to them and don't hold back a word. This is the Lord saying to Jeremiah, you go speak to this nation. Don't hold back a word. And it may be that they listen and they turn from their evil way and I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their deeds. This is what you say to them. 
Thus says the Lord, if you do not listen to me, to walk in the law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I'll make your house like Shiloh. I will, I will bring destruction on this nation. Now, that message came repeatedly from the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah. Here's one from Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39 and verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that uh, which your fathers have stored up to this day will be carried off to, everyone? To Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's Isaiah saying to the southern kingdom of Israel, your, your day is coming. Judah, your day is coming. Not Israel, Judah. Now, there's more. I won't read them all, but um, Jeremiah 25 has another one from Jeremiah who says, for 23 years I've been telling you. For 23 years I've been telling you. Sounds like a parent, right? For 23 years I've been telling you to turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. And if you don't turn back to the Lord, then I am going to raise up. This is what it says in Jeremiah. I'm going to raise up my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Think about that. God is telling his people, I will raise up my servant, a wicked pagan king, and he will serve me to bring chastening to my people, Israel. That's what God promised to do. When you come to the book of Daniel, it's happening. And all you can say, we sang a song, God is faithful. God is faithful. Was God faithful when he came and took into captivity um, his own people? When he took the southern kingdom, Judah, and sent them off to Babylon, was he faithful? Everybody? Yeah, because he warned them, and he promised them, and he was patient with them, and they lasted a long time, and God was patient, and then he wasn't. And he said, I'm going to send you into captivity for 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, um, I will bring you back. And so, if we go back to the chart, it was in 605 that Nebuchadnezzar came and raided Jerusalem. And the treasures in the temple were taken, along with Daniel and some others, which we're going to read about in just a moment. And then in 586, Jerusalem was finally destroyed. And that is where we are as we open the book of Daniel. Got it? Sometimes it helps to see where you plop down. Because, you know, you open your Bible and you go in the Old Testament, you say, well, what is this about? Where does it fit? Well, now you know exactly where it fits and you could tell the story, right? Are there any questions? Okay, so we are in the Old Testament where these things were written for our instruction that paying close attention to them, we would have hope on how to live because there are very many similarities to Daniel's experience and our experience. And so now let's go to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to see three acts, three episodes, three chapters. And the first is a young man 
captured. This was read for us. I'll just read verse 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, in ancient culture, nobody conquered another nation unless their God was stronger than that nation's God. That was the way ancient culture thought. Our gods will give us success over the gods of that nation. So you look at verse 2, and it clearly says, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Does that mean that our God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is weaker than the God of Marduk? Answer? No, but God was working. And he was faithful to his word, turn back to me, or... And it simply says that God then gave Jehoiakim, he gave his own people over into judgment. Now you'll notice that verse 3, not on the screen, says the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, put that in your notes, to bring some of the people of Israel, the royal family. These were the best of the people of Judah. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. And to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And to assign them a daily portion of the king's food to eat and wine to drink. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of this time, they would stand before the king. Now what this was, was a massive indoctrination plan. That people were taken out of the nation of Judah and brought over into Babylon, and then they were educated for three years. And only the best were taken, and among them, Daniel is there. Daniel, along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these four become part of the story of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> they were kidnapped. They were forced into a name change, which is described in verse 6. Daniel, which means God is judge, is changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was a pagan god. So Daniel, God is the judge. My new name, I am Bel's prince. Think about it. I mean, you can just put it this way. I, I am a son of God. We got taken over, and somebody says, your name now, Tom, is Satan's prince. <laughs> Crazy. And the other names are there too. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, which means servant of Aku, the moon god. Mishael means who is what God is. That's a great name. 
Your name shall be... It's like, who's like God? That's my name. And his name was changed to... Who is what Aku is? A pagan deity. Azariah, Jehovah has helped. His new name, Abednego, the servant of Nebo. And simply all the Chaldeans did, all Nebuchadnezzar did was take the, the, the men, who by the way were probably 16 years of age. Any 16-year-olders in here? 15? 14? Okay. Think about it. A, a young teenager. And put them in a new place, changed their name. My identity was always, God is my judge. My new name, I am the prince of Satan. I mean, they're radically trying to change their identity. They put them through all the educational strategies for three years and indoctrinate them in all the ways of astrology and language and um, all of the occultish practices. Now, you would imagine that Daniel and his friends were probably fairly well versed in the Torah and the Old Testament, but now they're being saturated with all of this new information. They were probably familiar with the prophetic messages of Jeremiah and Isaiah, how this day of judgment might come, and now they're sort of caught up in all of the chaos at age 14. Uh, you know, they would say, well, we didn't do it. Our parents did it. Look what our parents did to us, and here we are, and now they're they're in captivity, and it's, it's bleak for them. I ask you the question, how would you maintain your identity in an indoctrination camp? How would these young boys keep their faith in a place where someone is saying, this is your name, this is your new language, these are your new subjects of study, you shall be a subject of Babylon. Well, they did. They did. And here's the question for us today. And for every young person who's here especially. And if it's true for a 15-year-old, it's true for a 40-year-old. Would you agree? You, you need to keep your identity that God gave you. How do you keep your identity of what God says about you when the world is saying something else about you? And I plead with every young person in this room, God says something about you. You are created in His image. You are infinitely valuable. You have been redeemed by Jesus. You have purpose meaning because he is your God and do not let the world tell you otherwise. You need that. And I think what happened to Daniel being submerged in a new culture is for our instruction because we're kind of submerged in a cultural influence, incubation, indoctrination camp. Would you agree? I mean, if you're not careful, you can be absolutely saturated your identity needs to come from God. It did for them, and that's why they were able to stand. And they didn't have a Bible. They had oral tradition, probably, of the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't have a, 
a spanky New Testament with them. They had in their mind probably the words of the prophets. So for every one of us in the room, if you're still paying attention to me, you possess a great deal more than Daniel had by what you have here And it's our responsibility to know what is in this Bible, to know what God says about us, to know what God says about the future. And you know what? We're going to study later this year the book of Revelation and the later part of Daniel in in some measure because we're only going to go through the first six chapters. Sorry if that disappoints you. But the, the end of history is written in here. And we know how it ends. And so there's no reason that we shouldn't be really prepared to live in our indoctrination camp, wherever it is around us, and say, well, this is what the Lord says, and I'm with the Lord. That's what Daniel says. He was a man, a young man captured. Now, we have to quickly move, but beginning in verse 8, a young man resolved. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Excuse me, I've been wrestling with a cold for two weeks, and uh, you get to see it. Verse 8, Daniel made a resolution. He made an internal conviction in his heart that I will not defile myself. Now, it's not absolutely clear what's happening here, but it appears that the food being offered to him was not kosher, was not according to uh, the prescription of Jewish law for them. And in all probability, that same food that the king would have eaten would have also been offered as a, a sacrifice to Marduk, Nebo, Aku, and any other deity. So it was common that when an animal was slaughtered, it was slaughtered to the pagan deity and then brought out and sold in the market that people would eat. And the king got only the best. So only the best animals were slaughtered to the pagan deities. And then the king would take it and he would give it to his palace. So here's Daniel saying, should I eat this beautiful prime rib offered to Marduk? And he said, I I can't do that. Probably that's what's in his mind. This is not what God told me to eat. So he made a resolution to say, I I can't do this. And it raises the question then, where does Daniel draw the line? He had to be educated. He was under this influence. But at this place, he drew the line and said, I'm not going to eat this. So what does he do? The end of verse 8 says, Therefore he asked. I have that underlined in my Bible. Because I don't see Daniel throwing a temper tantrum, taking his tray and throwing it on the floor saying, This is slop. I'm not eating this. Hey, he sets it aside. I bet he prays. And then he asks. And this is where a little bit where we get the idea of how do you live in a hostile culture in a winsome way where God will meet you in your conviction and join you in helping you be faithful. I think that's what Daniel did. He stopped. He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And verse 9 says, this is the second time you see this verb, and God gave 
Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. See, Daniel made a resolution, and he imagined a solution, and he persuaded his captor to try it, and God met him in that moment and gave him favor so that his resolution would be supported. I get the sense here that it was a private response of Daniel to Ashpenaz. He's not raging against Nebuchadnezzar. He's not starting a protest. He's not doing anything except humbly saying, would you honor my request? And God did. So he won on this one, but he didn't win on all of the other ones. He still was called by a new name. He still had this education program. Um, And there's one more thing that I think probably doesn't make it into most of our Sunday school lessons. Daniel reports to Ashpenaz. You see his title? He is the chief of the eunuchs. I think it's very probable that Daniel and his friends suffered the indignity of castration when they entered into this place. It's what a king would have done if he had subjects like that. I only say that to say, can you imagine the losses of Daniel? My family, my home, my language, my name, my teaching, my masculinity, my future progeny, my hope of a family, my family name going on, it's all gone. And what does Daniel do? God, I will not defile myself. I am yours. Can I ask you a question? In the indoctrination camp in which we live, which is the United States, where do you draw the line and say, I, I, won't, I won't go beyond that. I'm the Lord's. The world is pushing me to place my value in money. I trust in the Lord. The Lord is telling me I deserve to get drunk. To have sex wherever I want it. To make a name for myself. You know, what are the pressures the world is pressing us into its mold about? And then where will we be modern Daniels that would say, uh, I, I cannot do that? That's an important question that all of us should say. I don't get a sense Daniel was legalistic, but he banded together with brothers and said, this is what we're going to do. And God met him in that, in that resolution. And he helped him. God gave him favor. I want you to see, the first time we saw God gave was in verse 2, where God gave Jehoiakim. God's at work. Here, God's at work in Daniel's life to give him favor there. The last section, and you know we're moving fast, right? Verse 17, is a young man who is guided by God. A young man captive, a young man resolved and a young man guided by God. Verse 17 says this, as for these youths, well, you know, I guess I took for granted that we knew that. Should I just explain a little bit what happened when he made his resolution? It's been in my heart all week, so I 
assumed you knew it. <laughs> but Daniel made a resolution not to eat it, and they gave him the opportunity to not have it. Daniel said, just give me 10 days. And so, verse 12, I, before we go on, um, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths that eat the king's food be observed and then deal with us accordingly. So Ashpenaz listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the other youths who ate the king's food. It's a miracle. They ate vegetables and got fatter. <laughs> it's the Daniel diet. They were definitely fried vegetables, don't you think? <laughs> No, I think God, God met them. God met them in that. And God blessed them in that. And all the others who were eating wine and meat and everything, they, they were not as sharp as Daniel and his friends. I mean, a lot of people have gone crazy and made this the Daniel diet. You can try it. It's not a, a, a divine plan, I think, that needs to be replicated again, but it's worth looking at. I, I want to eat something that's good for me. And, and here it was. And God met him in that. And uh, so the steward took away the food from them, and then we're done with that episode. Now verse 17. A young man who's guided by God. Verse 17. As for these four youths, what do you see? You underlining? What's the next two words? God gave. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. There is a miraculous intersection of Daniel saying, Lord, I want to be yours, and God meets him. God meets him in this, and he, he gives them skill and understanding. When they were brought in before the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke to them, verse 19, and uh, among them, none were found to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And verse 20 says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about the which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, 1559 B.C. So God is at work here and giving to Daniel this opportunity to stand for God in this very difficult place and God is meeting him. And because we are in a whirlwind, let me just give three points of application here on how God guided. Number one, a first application point is this, that God is in control. How many of you would say amen to that? You would, right? But that's not the full principle that I want you to see. The full principle I want you to see is that God is in control of those who are in control. Now would you say amen? Or are you already thinking about American politicians? <laughs> and you say, really? Or our local politicians? Or world leaders? No. Our God reigns. And He sets up kings and He puts them down. And God is in control of those who are in control. Could I draw an application? That means there is a sense in which every one of us under authority, 
whether you're a teenager under your parents' authority, or whether you're an employee under your employer, or whether you're a citizen in Thornton under the ruling governmental officials, there is a sense in which we are all under authority raised up by God. Even if they are wicked. We need to learn how to live under God's rule when he has people in our life who are in control that we may not have a high degree of respect for. Because God is in control of those who are in control. That may take a little bit for that to get into your soul and say, I, I could live by that. And there are times when it's right to stand and say, well, you may believe that, but my God says that. And there are right times. And Daniel was in a very difficult place in which he was being pressured to do things. And there were just certain times that he said, well, I will do this and I will do that and I will do that, but I will not do this. And we're going to see that happen in the book of Daniel. And that's not always a simple process, is it? It's not always easy. But we know that God was in control here. He called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And however you judge what's happening in our own day, uh, and it could be that you may think our nation is moving so far and far away from God and away from the fear of God that it's not under his control. We may be under judgment for what's going on in our world today, but our God still is on the throne. Would you agree? We need to have that in our mind that God is on the throne. And uh, that's the lens of the book of Daniel that we'll be looking at. Number two, God wants to rule in the hearts of those who live in a land that rejects God's rule. And that would include Daniel, that God wants to rule in Daniel's heart in all the things that he'll do from this day forward while he lives under the rule of a pagan, wicked egomaniac Nebuchadnezzar. And he's got to live in that system and be under God's control and be under God's rule and say, my life is for you, God. And that is a tremendous challenge. And we're going to make some comparisons between Daniel's day and our day, but let's not make sure, let's make sure we do not make a direct equivalent between Nebuchadnezzar and President Biden. Or Babylon and the United States. They're not direct equivalents, but they're similarities that we can draw and they say, well, so what's the implication for us in our world today? We do live in a world in which Christian morality is expressly repudiated. The things that we hold dear are despised. And traditional Christian doctrines and views and values and morality today are perceived to be detrimental to the social good of our world, we live in that kind of world where that is increasingly happening. So it's a good question to say, how do we live with God ruling our hearts in a culture that's not under God's rule? It's rebelling against Him and not under the fear of God. The book of Daniel is going to lead us in this way. Ready for one more principle? Last principle is this. God's rule does not preclude sacrifice, suffering, 
or even death. I was in Israel a couple weeks ago, and I had the opportunity to be on this trip that was a glorious trip through the land of Israel. And one of the passions of my, one of my guides was uh, to see Palestinians and Muslims in Israel find Christ. And he's part of a ministry in which Muslims are coming to Christ in Israel. And he told me that when a Muslim comes to faith in the Middle East, in the ministries that he's been a part of, they ask them two questions. And I bet you've only been asked one of these when you became a Christian. The first is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord who can forgive you of your sins, and is He your Savior? We would all say. Do you know what the second question they ask? Are you willing to suffer for Him? Any of you ever get asked that question when you became a Christian? We don't live in a culture in which we are asked, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? I found that to be fascinating. But it is true, isn't it, that God's rule doesn't preclude probability of sacrifice and suffering in this world you will have tribulation and even death it helps us to think that that was true for God's people all along two passages I'd like to just close with one do you, do you know what the book of Hebrews is all about the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is called the hall of fame for faith the Hall of Faith. And it just recites all these heroes of the faith. You know, any of you know this? I, we don't have time to look at it, but it just recites over and over again all these people. And what many people don't remember is at the end of chapter 11 in Hebrews, beginning around verse 35, celebrating those who had great faith, it says of them, here it is, verse 35 and 36, some were tortured. Great faith, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and dens and caves on earth. Who, Who wants to join that group? Oh, you know, that's a tough group to join. Jesus said, if you follow me, they hated me. They, they may hate you. And Daniel is now in a place where, you know, it, he's in a new world. So let's close by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. And 1 Peter chapter 3, it just helps us. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are, everybody, you're blessed. Blessed are you when men say all kinds of evil against you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone asks about the reason for the... Remember we started with these things are written that you would have hope. Christians are supposed to live in the world that's so crazy, but have hope. And it's our hope that should make people say, what is it about you? You should be able, under difficult circumstances, to live with a kind of hope that somebody says, wow, you're different. What is it about you? You should be able to answer. I can give a reason that the reason I have hope is because Christ is in my heart, and yet you do it with 
gentleness, respect, winsome. This is a winsome Daniel says, hey, could I try this with you? Let me, let me not, let me have vegetables instead. I'll give you a shot, kid. And he does. And we want to live in the world this way. Not compromising. Not that. It's like I know where to draw the line, then I want to live there. It's good stuff, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'll give us a vision for our life. A vision for our life that has the conviction that you are God enthroned in heaven. You are always in control. And you're in control in a way that you want to rule in our life. And I just pray for every person in the room today who's facing uh, the challenge of indoctrination pressure from a world that hates you and has no fear of God. And I pray that you'll just keep us grounded in the identity that we have as we belong to you. And then give us an idea of the way we could live in this world for you in a winsome way, in a hopeful way, that God is our God and nothing shall come into our life outside of your awareness. You are sovereignly in control of all things. And be in control of our life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.